Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. And so we're going to be, this is going to be serious tonight. What I want to do tonight is just kind of do two things. Is talk about the historical plausibility of the resurrection. Are there good historical reasons that we can, that we can believe that it happened? But then also what I want to suggest is the spiritual plausibility of the resurrection. Can we look inside ourselves and actually find that evidence inside of ourselves for the plausibility of the resurrection? Because we're going to be really serious for a moment right here. Take two fingers and put them on your throat. Everybody do this. For all of us, that will stop. That's important. Right? And something happened in the first century, whether or not you're a Christian, wherever you are in terms of belief about the story of Jesus, a man claimed to be the Son of God. He was crucified, he was dead and buried, and he rose again from the dead. People claimed that he rose again from the dead. The Old Testament predicted it in Isaiah. He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Jesus himself said things in John 11, like, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And then after, Jesus's, after the resurrection, Paul says in Romans 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The way one or if campus minister actually describes any type of Christian worship is he says, if it's good worship, it's preparing you for death. Because it's making us deal with the most important thing that often feels, rare, or rarely feels, urgent. Um, and what I want to convince you of, at least right now as we start, is that the magnitude of that claim that Jesus conquered death is too important for it to no longer be urgent. Because here's what's true. This, that pulse, that heart is going to stop. And if this happened in the first century, if God, through His Son, conquered death, if that really happened, and if you feel like, I think there could be a plausible, it, it could be plausible that that really happened, what would be the more logical response for you tonight? To study for midterms or to investigate whether or not the resurrection happened? So what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about the plausibility of the resurrection. This is not going to convince, this is anybody 100% of the resurrection, but I hope to give you kind of just some examples of, um, or, or some understanding about how history works that give us evidence. Before we do that, we're going to read from Paul, two of Paul's letters, his famous chapter, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians on the resurrection, and then two verses from Philippians. This is what he says in his, to the church at Corinth. If you hold fast the word I preach, or sorry, for, starting in verse 3. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of all of the apostles, and last of all, to one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says this about the resurrection. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life uh, only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But in Christ, if, Christ, if in fact Christ has been risen from the dead or been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The grass, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Dear Jesus, this, uh, these are big claims that we need to know if they're true or not, and we need your word to testify us. You need your Holy Spirit to testify to our hearts. We need you to open, up to the possi- open us up to the possibility that all of these things that have been said about what happened in the first century are true, and I pray that you would open us up to the courage of trying to figure out life in light of these claims. Be with us, Holy Spirit, and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do first is I want to talk about the historical plausibility of the resurrection. And some of these things are things you might have heard before. This is a huge field of uh, academic inquiry for both uh, believing scholars and non-believing scholars. Um, And it's really picked up even more so in the last 30 years. And so there's a lot of conversation about this. But I just kind of want to go through some key historical aspects about what went on in the first century, what we have actually historical testimony to, and how to think about those things. And so, and, and also, these are very personal for me, too, as well, as I consider things like the resurrection. Each of these are things that mean a lot to me and kind of reinforce the plausibility of the resurrection for me. And the first thing is this. If you read the Gospels, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women, and that's extremely significant. At this point in time in the ancient Near East, and this is wrong, this is not okay, but at this point in time in the ancient Near East, uh, women were very lowly regarded and to the degree that they were not allowed to testify in court. Their testimony was not considered valid. So women were very, had very, very low social standing and their testimony and their witness was not even received in legal court settings. Now that's really important when you begin to consider that the Gospels all say the first people who saw the resurrected Lord were women. And the way, the reason it's important is to think about it a little bit like this. If I knew that I was going to try to convince you of something that I knew was a lie, right? If I was going to try to convince you right now that LeBron James is at the Axon Palm, and you said, how do you know? And I answered with witnesses, right? What would I say? I would give you, I would fabricate a witness that would seem credible, Right, I would say, um, you know, uh, the dean of religious life, Jane Shaw, actually invited him here to talk about spirituality and sports at actually the Axon Palm. Right, Dean Jane Shaw, we would believe her. Right, what I wouldn't do if I knew I was lying to you is I wouldn't fictionalize or fabricate unreliable witnesses. I wouldn't say two eight-year-olds told me. (laughs) Right, no offense if you're eight years old. Come back to RUF. We're glad you're here. But <laughs> if I was lying, you wouldn't back up your lie with the least credible witnesses. The only explanation that you would ever talk about the least credible witnesses is, that, is if, in fact, that's what happened. Right? 
Women at that time were the least credible witnesses, and the only logical explanation for the gospel writers to account for the resurrection by the witness of women is because that's actually what happened. If they were making up a story, it would not make any sense at all. It would be incredibly irrational and unreasonable for them to base their fictional story and base the veracity of it on the claim of uncredible witnesses, women. So that's the first one of, one of many first pieces of evidence. The second thing is this, is when the, the accounts of the resurrection were, wit- were written. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth was written around 20 years after Jesus' ministry. He cites a number of witnesses in the passage that we talked about, uh, over 500 people. Um, he, uh, he's consciously writing within the lifetime of at least hundreds of people who actually witnessed the resurrected Jesus. The Gospel of Luke was written within 40 years of the resurrection, Mark within 30 years. And what we need to consider is this. Again, let's take a fictional, let's take another situation. Mother Teresa died in 1997. If someone published a book today, right, just 20 years after her death, and said after Mother Teresa died, she actually rose again from the dead, and she walked around and talked and taught on Stanford's campus for a month and a half. Someone published that book today, let alone several books. Let's just say one. How quickly would that book be dismissed and debunked and made fun of? Right? There are too many people available to discredit something so crazy unless it happened. If those books persisted, it would only be because when we, if the book about Mother Teresa persisted and began to change the face of the world, it would only be because we actually followed up with the hundreds of eyewitnesses and they all said, yeah, that's actually what happened. Right? So what's more reasonable? Think about this. That these claims of the resurrection, they're turning the ancient Near East upside down during the first century for the first three centuries, Right? turning the region into turmoil. What's more reasonable? That it was based on lies that were very easily disputable and just no one happened to dispute them? Or it really happened, so no one came forward to dispute them. So when the accounts of the resurrection were written, they are all written within within the lifetime of hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. And actually, Paul asked us to consider the witnesses. So, you have the least credible witness. You have accounts written within the lifetime of hundreds of witnesses. But here's another one. Uh, One of the things put forward is that they could have hidden the body or taken the body and created a legend or created a myth. That the disciples, the followers of Jesus, um, uh, created a myth because they were frustrated with kind of what happened at the end of kind of their following, right? And we might think, well, they had an incentive to lie about this. But that doesn't make sense either. It's actually quite the opposite. If they were lying about this, they had every incentive to come clean. Because here's what would happen to these people. Peter would go on to be crucified. Andrew was scourged. James was stabbed. Philip was martyred. Thomas was stabbed. You can go online on Wikipedia and read about the death of all the apostles. They were all killed because they believed that they saw the resurrected Jesus. The first persecution of Christians actually happens in the 60s, in the lifetime of witnesses, by Nero. So here's the question that's kind of before us. If the apostles in the early church knew Jesus was dead and hid the body and created a legend, 
if they thought, our leader died, this is really embarrassing, so let's do this. Let's take his body, let's hide it, and let's say that he rose again so that we can keep the movement going, right? We could understand that for a little bit, right? But then this is what happens. The authorities started killing people who believed that Jesus rose again. How many people do you think would willingly die for something they know is a lie? Right? If Eric created a movement, where is Eric? Where are you sitting here? There you are, back there. If Eric created a movement and died, and we all started following him, and then he died, and we all decided this is embarrassing, and it totally deflates our movement, let's say that he rose from the dead so that people will still believe in Eric's movement. Right? But then here's what happened to us next. All of us in the room, we followed Eric, he died, it's embarrassing, we say he rose again. But this is what happens next in the first century. The government begins to systematically arrest and kill people who claim that. So what would you say when the government came to you and say, did you really see Eric rise again from the dead? Because if you say you did, we're going to kill you. What do you say? At least one of us, if not all of us, we love you, Eric. But we're going to be like, no, 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 it didn't happen. So here's the thing. I know. What's more reasonable? That they all died for something they knew to be a lie or that they saw the resurrected Jesus. In point of fact, here's what's true, what we know about a lot of us, or for all of us, is we might not die just for any truth, right? But what if the truth was that we saw the King of glory, the God of creation, we saw that he defeated death? That might actually be the only thing that gives you the courage to face death, Right? So what's more reasonable, that hundreds if not thousands of Christians died for what they knew to be a lie or that they died for the truth? One other point, and then we'll move on to the second half. Um, there are also incentives for the opposition. So here's what's happening in the first century. Uh, Nero, the Roman government, is getting upset with the turmoil that the Christian movement is creating. It's turning the world upside down. And this is the way a professor at Vanderbilt Divinity School talks about it. He's, he concludes that I think that Jesus' body rotted away in the tomb. And what happened was Jesus' followers were overwhelmed with sorrow. And they wanted to see Jesus so bad. And they were so disappointed that they felt like they saw him. Right? They had some kind of spiritual experience of seeing him. And the problems... Uh, is that the claims of the resurrected Jesus created so much turmoil that if, in fact, the Romans who guarded the tomb of Jesus still had his body, they would have produced his body. Again, let's go back to our situation. If Eric is, if we're going around saying Eric Ockenhaus rose from the dead and conquered death, right? It's crazy. If, when we claim that, it turned the Bay Area upside down, there are revolts, right? There are riots, things are going crazy. And if at that time Governor Jerry Brown, in fact, had Eric's body, what makes more sense, that he would not produce it or that he would produce it? But they had no body to produce because Jesus was risen, right? This might be different than what we normally do at RUF, but these things, I hope you begin to sense that they're important. Um, because the first claim, the thing that validates all the other claims in Scripture by the Scripture's own admission, by Paul's admission in 1 Corinthians 15, is the claim of the resurrection. N.T. Wright, who's the preeminent New Testament scholar alive today, was in the faculty club at Stanford. Three years ago, 
doing a dialogue with Ken Taylor, one of the professors at, uh, in the philosophy department at Stanford. And Taylor said, Tom, what would it take for you to just drop your belief in Jesus? And Wright didn't hesitate at all. He said, oh, if someone proved that the resurrection didn't happen. Nothing else matters in Scripture if the resurrection didn't happen. If it did happen, everything matters. The early church actually grew, not because they, had, they sensed the appeal of the idea that God is a God of love. It's actually not why the church grew. But actually it grew because of the claim of the resurrection, and it was the validity of the resurrection that actually gave confidence for them to believe the other claims of Scripture, that God is a God of love, that He's full of mercy, that He's full of grace. They believed those things actually because they're so deeply grounded in the claim of the resurrection. This is just a sampling of some of the things. Uh, this is a huge field of academic inquiry and scholarly inquiry that the Bible uh, is a part of, that archaeology is a part of. But here's all I want to do to suggest to you tonight. Wherever you are, if you're a Christian, I hope it encourages you. I hope this is something that you think about. Um, but if nothing else, consider this. What's more reasonable? That a movement that changed and shaped the entire world more than any other event in history, what's more reasonable? That a movement that was really, really, really should have been ridiculous, easy to, easy to discredit, and no one just kind of made the effort to discredit it, or in fact it happened. And I would say that if, if you begin to explore this more and more, I think it seems to take more faith to not believe the resurrection than to believe it. Believing the resurrection makes far more sense of history than not believing in it. That's the historical plausibility of the resurrection. And it's not a 100% airtight case. We need more than that. Um, but I wanted to ground us with that a little bit. And then I wanted to go on and talk about what I call the spiritual or emotional plausibility. So there's kind of, right, we talked about objectivity a little bit. Like, here's how history functions. It's really bizarre to imagine a history, how history would have worked out the way it worked out unless this really happened. But I want to talk about kind of subjective plausibility. How does it make sense, actually, of our lives? Or how do our lives actually make sense of the resurrection? And uh, two years ago, a Christian counselor said this to a room full of college pastors. And I'll never forget this phrase. He goes, sadness is the most holy emotion. What he says, and, and what he got at is, it's the emotion that we're most afraid of, but it's actually the emotion that's hardest to screw up. Uh, because what he was saying, and what he went on to say is, he said, sadness is this gift that God gave Adam and Eve as they walked out the garden. And it was this kind of, pulsing beacon in your soul that you can never quite quiet. We're all trying to quiet it in different ways. But that pulsing beacon is always saying to you, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And what sadness is intended to be in your life is it's intended to be a clue. And oftentimes we run from that clue because it's very scary. And we're desperately afraid of sadness because we all know that if you actually go into your sadness and you begin to explore it and you explore your fears and you explore your anxieties, what we find is eventually there's not a cure for it that this world has to offer, that what we best have to offer is to medicate the symptoms of it, to distract ourselves, right? We distract ourselves with all these different ways from kind of the most urgent and important things. So if you're religious, you try to outwork sadness, Right? You try to get rid of it by being even more religious. 
Uh, if you're ambitious, you try to out-achieve sadness. You try to get rid of it by achieving more. If you're a physical person, you try to out-train it, or we try to out-drink it, or we try to out-sex it. Anything to distract us from this fact, the worst possible thing that could happen to anyone happens to everyone. Every good thing will be taken from all of us. And what sadness is, maybe for a lot of us, maybe the, the point of application tonight is the sadness is there lurking. My, my greatest fear, the more I love my girls, the more I get afraid because I know they're going to leave. And the more I love my girls also, the sadder I get because I know one day we will be parted by death. And that sadness is lurking, and I don't want to acknowledge its presence because I don't want it to invade here and now. And so we're all trying to get rid of that sadness, the deep sadness, the real sadness. I'm not talking about like, you know, disappointment in day-to-day goals in life. I'm talking about the deep sadness none of us wants to deal with. It's there. We're trying to cover it. We're trying to outwork it. We're trying to outdrink it. We're trying to outtrain it. We're trying to Netflix it to death. That's my drug of choice, right? But the clue of sadness is actually a secretly embedded longing for the resurrection. Because when you're sad because your body doesn't work the right way, and then you become aware of the fact that maybe it'll never work the right way again. When you're sad because your parent is sick and you don't know which way it's going to go, and you know eventually it's not going to go the good way. When you're sad because your mind's not working. When you're sad because your friends left you out. When you're sad because you know... I'm not the right kind of person. When you're sad because you know there's hypocrisy all of your life, you're you're sad because you got the things you thought would make you happy and they left you empty. That is your sadness. That is God's gift to you. Your sadness in those moments. It's His gift to you saying, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And maybe the first thing we all need to be sad about is that we actually chose distraction over the courage to deal with reality. We all drugged ourselves in different ways to not deal with that sadness. Right? And then maybe the next thing is to let sadness force all of us to see that our cures for sadness are always treating the symptoms but never the real problem. We don't want to deal with the real deep sadness in the back. Paul's language in Romans 8 is beautiful. He says, For we know that all of creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth till now. That is deep groaning if you've never been in that setting. And he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit is this sense and this internal understanding. I think Jesus God, He died for our sins and He rose again from the dead. But we also groan eagerly, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. There's still sadness. And the sadness is telling you something. Be willing to be sad about the truly deep sad things. It will teach you, it will direct you, and it will show you. And what it is, is it's the something God put in you that says, hold out for the resurrection, don't settle for anything less. Because you know anything less won't do. And it's not also the sadness of the tragedies about life either. We also actually need to explore the sadness of success. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about that, and here's what I mean. I think you'll get this. 
He says it better than I can say it. He says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself weathering, wondering whether in our hearts we've always been desiring heaven. We can't tell each other about it. It's the secret signature of the soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Most people, if they had learned to, look, to, to really look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, the first thinking of some foreign country, the first taking up of some subject that excites us, those are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. And I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. And I think everyone knows what I mean. The resurrection of Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about the implications of it and a little bit more about the theology or the doctrine of it. The resurrection of Jesus is God's massive event in the middle of history that says, I am going to make everything sad untrue. Because here's the thing we don't need. Paul concedes this in 1 Corinthians. We don't need a God who says, I know you mucked it up, I know you sinned, and I forgave you. That, if that's the gospel alone, it's, not worth, it's worthless. Because if death still wins, then that means all that is is palliative care. Right? Oh, you sinned, God forgave you. It's not enough. If death still wins, the gospel is nothing more than palliative care. We need a God who says... All that is sad, I will make untrue. So his grace in the life and death of Jesus mends our hearts and restores us relationally to God. And he says, we, right, we encounter sin, we grieve it, we see that it grieves him. And then he says to us, see how committed I am in my loving forgiveness. Love is always calculated not in the intensity of feeling, but in the degree of sacrifice. So he calls us to look at the cross and he says, this is how much I love you. But the cross means nothing if he also doesn't mend our physical bodies and the world. That's the promise of the resurrection, and Jesus is the down payment. This is Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. We wait from it as we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, not, if, not even Christ is raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. This is the way a friend of mine said it last year, uh, who's just kind of walking through and struggling with the claims of the Bible. When we began to talk about the resurrection, he said, it can't be true for this reason, because it seems like the one thing I would want most to be true. And what I want to suggest to you all tonight is to consider that maybe because it's the one thing you want most to be true, that's actually really strong evidence that it's true. You have midterms this week. You have papers and finals you're preparing for. 
And, uh, and, and maybe the idea of resurrection seems important, but those midterms feel urgent. Uh, the Nicene Creed, another ancient Christian creed, says this. The way it says it at the end, it doesn't say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. It says, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It kind of, enter, it kind of engages anticipation. And what I hope you see is that, and what, I, what you need to see, is that when you take to heart, when you take your sadness to Jesus and to the promise of the resurrection, it absolutely can begin to change who you are right now. What you think about the end, if it's true that God is making all things new, that He didn't simply forgive your sins at the cross, but He rose again from the dead, and all those who are in Him by faith will join Him, and and, and He is making all things new. It will absolutely change who you are tonight as you go into midterms. Uh, When I was a kid, I'll close with this story. We're done. Um... Pretty quickly, when I was a kid, um, there was a basement down. There was a base, a closet in the basement downstairs that had one uh, had a lock on it that was a different key than all the other keys in the house. Right, all the other locks in the house took one key. This one was different. Well, as a ten-year-old, what you know that means is that's where Santa puts his presents. Right. <laughs> Spoiler: alert, Santa doesn't exist. We need to talk about that afterwards. But for the sake of illustration. Um, so, me and my little brother were sneakers, and as soon as Thanksgiving was over, we made daily trips, when mom and dad were away, uh, daily trips down to that basement, we knew where they hid the key, so we go down the stairs, and we peeked into that closet to see what had been accumulated already, right? We needed to know what was in store for Christmas. And so, you know, over the years, you'll probably remember, have more and less memorable Christmases, but I remember the Christmas of um, the Super Nintendo. Do y'all know? Have you heard of the Super Nintendo? Okay. This was a big deal for us at the time. Somebody was telling me tonight, like, don't say Super Nintendo. They don't even know what that means. Say Xbox. Y'all know what Super Nintendo means. So we go down on December 15th, open the door, peek in there, Super Nintendo. Right? All of our wildest dreams come true. Right there. Now here's my point. On December 15th, it was ours. It was bought. It was secured. We saw it. Right? It was ours. We didn't have it until December 25th. Absolutely ours. Didn't have it till December 25th. Here's my question. How do you think we acted from December 15th to December 25th? It completely changed who we are as kids. Did our chores. We're like... Just pleasing kids. We were incredibly respectful. We followed all of our parents' rules that we we thought were stupid and didn't make any sense. Right? When there was conflict, we like eagerly and joyfully sought to resolve it. Right? Worked hard. Lots of humility. Like less anxious. More respectful. Kinder. For those 10 days when we didn't have what was promised to us, but we saw a glimpse of what we knew was already ours, it completely changed who we were. Not to get some, not for the purpose of earning something, but because we already knew that our parents had secured it for us. The reality of the resurrection can change you right now. And prob- maybe what some of y'all don't know, you've heard me talk about this in RUF, is in the early church... 
they started, they changed the day of worship to Sunday. You know, the traditional Jewish Sabbath is actually on Saturday. And the reason they changed it to Sunday is because that's a resurrection day. And the reason that you go to church on Sunday morning is not to try to make your parents happy or Jesus happy or anything like that. Sunday morning is the beginning of the week. And what happens on Sunday morning is you go and you peek in the gift closet. It's intend, you're intended to start your week thinking, Jesus has made all things new. The resurrection is coming. He has started a good work. He has given you a glimpse into the gift closet so that it will change us for the rest of the week. You're supposed to start your week. And it absolutely can change you tonight to begin to think about what you have in Jesus in the future. Let's pray.